when we stopped on our way up to to get Arby's, we had to eat it in the parking lot because they wouldn't let you dine in because this was still pretty serious COVID times. And there was just a plastic Arby's bag over the bell by the door. Oh, I just yeah. remember thinking, hasn't COVID taken enough? They had to come for this too. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of 1001 Album Complaints. For our listeners who are used to us complaining about albums and ripping them apart, we're actually going to switch things up today and instead talk about some brand new music from The Chop. That's right, The Chop is releasing a phenomenal new hard rock album called Ghost Beef. My name is Adam. Thank you for joining us. And right off the bat, like we do in every episode, we're going to drop some of this album here. This is a clip of a song called The Legend of John Arby. there you have it totally rock so one of the perks of knowing these guys is that i've gotten an advanced copy of the album that i've been listening to all week and i'm very excited to introduce the band behind the music here in the studio with me today we've got rob cassis tom monahan and scott castillo gentlemen welcome thank you very much adam thanks adam thanks for having us yes very excited so now first i gotta ask what about 2022 made it the right time to tell the story of John Arby? You know, it's funny. I, in preparation for this, was going back, looking at some of the old files that I had saved of original demos for some of these. And the earliest one I could find was actually from October 15th of 2016. It was no the way. first demo Whoa. that I was able to find. We had worked a couple of songs doing various weird writing prompts, and I'd always had it in my head that, first of all, Arby's is amazing and delicious, but also super metal. And like fast food in and of itself is probably the most metal thing that you can think of. It is terrible for the people who eat it. It is terrible for the animals that are processed to create the food. It is terrible (laughs) for the people that work there. It's bad for everything. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for the economy. It it just ruins everything that it touches. Dude, that is so metal. It's brutal. brutal. It's how you put it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it is brutal because that, like, honestly, this concept of you're just taking all of these living beings and just parting them out and processing them into these gray loaves of deliciousness is... (laughs) pretty disturbing when you think about it on an industrial scale so you start so all right let's imagine a world in where 
you're living under this regime. You're living under the yoke of this this universe where everything is being commodified, commodified like that, and everything is being chopped up and parted out to to make a product. And it got pretty. It as I said it was pretty metal. And then hey, you know that seems like a pretty good uh, prompt for for writing. And Rob, being the gamesman that he is, was immediately like, "That sounds like an amazing prompt." And he had two songs in like three days or something like that. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah. I'll jump in here. So as Tom mentioned, you know, we have been working on this for a while. And I just, in addition to what Tom said, I just want to mention, I mean, you hear a lot, a lot, even in school and, and in the media about John Arby, the, the founding father and the, the statesman, but you don't hear that much about his second career as a, a despot who, who ruled the land with a, with a meaty fist. So we felt like that was really important to tell that story. Yeah, you see his name on all the hospital wings, all the philanthropy. You know, right. has got that well-known college scholarship fund that they're just you know sending under underprivileged youth to higher education, all in the name of this guy John Arby that is lauded as this kind of saint. We wanted to show you the dark side. Of John Pull back Arby. the sheets, man. <laughs> yes. Pull back the sheets. I remember hearing the stories as a kid, but you know, once you really dive into, you know, it's it's like folks say, winners write history, so. Getting, you know, peeling back the bun a bit, you really get to know what was going on. A very delicious history, if I do so. Which, which, if I may say, makes this not just great work, but important work. Yes. Completely agree. So, so listen, I know we're kind of, we're breaking with our format here today. We're all kind of flying a little by the seat of our pants. But the goal, I think, is to, the, the record just came out on Tuesday and we want you to listen to it and enjoy it and hear this story, of course. But we wanted to go and tell you about the process of, of how we did it, let you know, kind of expose ourselves, frankly, make ourselves a little bit vulnerable since we normally every week on this podcast <laughs> talk a lot of shit. I was going to say, yeah, Rob, you're right. We, we, tear, we tear a lot of albums apart, so yes. we get to see firsthand uh, the the a lot of the decisions that we question in other albums, of we get course. to see your thought process behind the decisions you guys made. Of course, and let me just if it's not clear already from listening to our normal podcast episodes, we all have the utmost respect for all recording artists. It is not an easy task to to write good songs, to arrange good songs, to produce good material. It it, it truly is not. And if you go through this process as we have. Now, many times, you you really know that. So we get it. But I wanted to say that, you know, one of the reasons I, I responded to this prompt other than the story itself was just that I've always liked heavier music like The Sword and Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. And, but it wasn't really a style. Maybe I, I won't speak for everybody. It wasn't a style I had played in before. So we just set out to really write something that rocked as hard as humanly possible. And I'm and I'm really satisfied with the result and I think you can hear that on the tape. Did you guys deliberately get into a metal or a hard rock mindset for a specific amount of time or or did you really Im- immerse yourself in that or did you really just draw from stuff that you had already known or did you go delve a little bit more like I I know for myself, right? Iron Maiden, somebody that I've heard of my entire life and I didn't really actually look into them until this podcast. Well, you know, we've done with a couple of our previous writing projects is they've kind of been 
a bunch of different types of genres all kind of mashed into one album. You listen to that Beverly Crushers album that we did, and there's like, you know, jazz songs, hip hop songs, some like surf rock songs, there's a lot of different types of songs all kind of mashed into one. And we wanted to stay a little bit more thematically consistent on this one. However, I do feel like we also kind of wandered around a little bit in the metal genre. There's some kind of like riff rock going on. There's some kind of like skis rock going on. There's like some groove metal going on in there. So I feel like it actually does do a nice job of covering a lot of the different metal sounds. You know, one of the things that I actually found to be the most impressive is Rob and I had been living in this project for a while before we brought Scott in. And Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, but you would you were sort of not into metal kind of at all right i did like some metal i definitely expanded my palette a bit as i started getting more into this process with you guys and just trying to look for newer bands because i think similar to some of the stuff that rob was talking about most of my reference points were like over 25 years old i think probably the most recent (laughs) what could be conveyed as hard rock band I had I had listened to was like Rage Against the Machine, which hadn't put out an album in years. I also hadn't played drums in like over 10 years before we started talking about music stuff uh one day and then you guys kind of talked me into to come in and jam in and then it evolved into this thing. Well you signed on because you realized again how important this story Yeah I knew was. this the work needed this to be revolutionary done. was. Oh, sacrifices right. had to be made around the table. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say this that's how me and Tom like them. Rusty and impressionable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just envisioning of- Scott walking into his basement and pulling the sheet off the drums and the yeah, dust, the dust settles came. and they're they're shining and yeah. I had to blow off all the cobwebs. Right. Uh but yeah, I did end up getting back into i actually liked like metal and harder rock when i was younger um and then i ended up getting into a lot of more recent bands which has actually been really nice i think there's some cool stuff happening in that scene yeah well yeah definitely for me i i listened to a bunch more stuff very purposefully to try to get some vibe i had i had a baseline and a lot of that 70s metal and and of course in some of the stuff that was happening in the 90s and but when i was really trying to think about the guitar styles i did go and learn more of the Tony Iommi solos and listen to more stuff like Iron Maiden and and definitely, like I said, the sword and just try to take, you know, Judas Priest, try to take it a kind of expansive view, Wolf Mother, et cetera. And you learn as much of those, as many of those licks and those little solo parts as I could and try to incorporate that into my practice uh, to sound better on the record. For listeners of the podcast, we'll appreciate that. Uh, there is a song on here that we'll actually touch on later where I end up using a pick to get the most effective sound, which is something <laughs> no that I way. massive amounts of shit on, yes. And I want you to know that as Tom was sweating it out in the booth, he was in there alone, and Scott and I were in the control room, yeah. and he was having trouble with a part, and the, and the engineer slash producer, Tim, was basically suggesting the pick to him in that moment. I was on the phone <laughs> texting Adam and Alan and Phil immediately. To let them know what was happening in real time. I think you refused it a few times, Tom. No, because I, I remember, I remember this this specific incident. And I'm sitting in there, and my phone is kind of sitting off to the side, and it just starts blowing up. And I'm like, Rob's <laughs> texting him about that fucking pick, where you son of a bitch. And again, this is like a 14 minute fucking song or something like that. So we're like deep into like struggling through a, a, a difficult part, and I was like, ah, but it yeah. sounds good. 
that's what support in the recording studio means to us. So, <laughs> Adam, I needed prompts for this, but I'll just take the reins. I wanted to talk about what the chop is, what the chop unlimited is, why we released I, it. I under was this actually name. I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's give some background because we've been we've been living with this for a little while, but it's it's a little bit of a nebulous concept. So let me try to explain. So the chop was a band that Tom and Phil and I. And even sometimes podcast guest James were in back in our late 20s in the San Francisco area. We played a ton of shows around the West Coast. We ended up releasing a record. And for me, at least, and I think for a lot of us, it was a lot of firsts, right? Of just being in a gigging band in a big city, writing songs for that, going on these mini tours. We had a van, a 16-passenger van, a lot of experimentation with early recording, First with a crappy home tape machine, which I know we've referenced on this podcast, the Tascam, and later at a sort of recording college where they gave us free recording time, but we had to record literally in the middle of the night. And so it was just a lot of fun. We were all great friends. And we always believed in the name. We believed in the brand of it. It was more kind of than a band. It was, in my mind, I think in everyone's mind, just about old friends having fun, making each other laugh through the lens of being in a band. And so then flash forward... That band broke up, but then flash forward to many years, you know, several years later, it came time Phil and Alan, our other podcast hosts who aren't here right now, were going to release their first record as their East Coast gigging band, Mega, and they wanted to release a vinyl, so we chose the Chop Unlimited as the label, kind of leveraging that name and that, that band, and then came the Beverly Crushers Sick Bay release. We kept it going. So that's kind of it's kind of a record label at this point. And in, in addition to being a defunct band, then we started this podcast, the Thousand and One Album Complaints, and we needed a production company. And lo and behold, we chose the Chop Unlimited. So it all happened fairly organically. And now we're in this position where we just decided to keep building out this channel. Tom and I, and really all our friends, we hope to get Adam out of retirement one of these days, even out of musical retirement. That is. And record with us and put more things out. You know, we have a lot of ideas for other music we want to record, concept albums we want to make of different various genres and things like that. And it just makes sense for us to do it through a consolidated channel of creativity. We plan to make a lot more music and we now have plans, you know, reaching into 2023 and beyond where you're going to see a lot more cool stuff coming. Awesome. So I do want to I, I want to get back to something that that Tom had mentioned. So Tom, you had said that you recently discovered kind of the first draft of this Arby's concept in was it 2014, 2016? Yeah. 2016. So how how did you get from there to here? So when did you pick this back up and what what was the writing process well, hold like? On. Did can you guys we, were, Can we go can we go back one more step, which is that Tom yeah. has been obsessed with the Arby's Corporation for as long as I have known him. That is true. Yes. I love Arby's. <laughs> to the point where when we were driving around these Western United States in that 16-passenger van, and we, anytime Tom was driving, he would somehow sense where the exit on the freeway with the Arby's was without seeing a sign. It was it a was sort of a sixth sense. It was the Arbdar. It was dubbed the yeah. Arbdar. <laughs> Yes. And Tom was very consistent about it. He made us go there morning, noon, and night for meals. Oh my! This is pre-smartphone days, so I was not. How did you survive? My God! Oh, and the that's, smells that's coming out be. of that van were amazing. After that, <laughs> and the, like no lie, Arby's for breakfast was the order of the day if I was driving. Wow! And they do not have a breakfast menu. If in case that's not clear, <laughs> yes. 
no breakfast to consume. <laughs> so, so twelve hour old Arby's in a van is is. Well, the, I mean, the we weren't waking day. up before eleven, so it's not like. Right, we yeah, getting... that's okay. Got it. But you know, I've and I've always looked at the Arby's Corporation as being particularly poorly run, um, in that they have this gigantic menu and people order maybe three things off of it. And like, why are you keeping the supply chain going to get your freaking gyro? Uh, and you know, you're like Niswa salad that you have going on. Like, why are you trying to stock these things? They sell three a week. We're talking ocean meat. <laughs> ocean meat, right? right. They have it's, yeah. They one of the bizarrest uh, marketing campaigns I, we can think of. Yes, I, I always I was just posited that the menu at Arby's exists exclusively for the person who was dragged to Arby's because their friend wanted a roast beef sandwich and they're like fine I guess I'll go what do they got oh good lord give me the fajitas like you know like I don't understand why they don't just they gotta they should in and out it and just be like we sell roast beef and we have one chicken option and that's it I, shut up well I want to get back to you talking about how you created I think John Arby was probably the first tracks probably the demo you're referring to but I, I want you to talk about that momentarily but I, you originally pitched this concept to me, and I was like, yes, we should do that. And we both started writing songs. And it was shortly after that that there came an inflection point where you came to me and you just said, Arby's hates children. Yes. Yes. <laughs> if you had a restaurant and you wanted children to avoid you at all costs, what would you do? You'd put roast beef on the menu. How, what can we add to that? Horseradish. Yes. <laughs> Definitely no toys. No playground to speak of. Yes, and I was like, when Tom said that. First of all, I was I was dying laughing, and I, I was like, you're 100 percent right. And then Tom immediately wrote a song about that. Yep, <laughs> that was when it all cracked open. That's when the concept expanded. <laughs> that is that song, Fatted Calves. That uh, I'm yes. sure you all are very familiar with from listening to that album by this point. Yes. Yeah. The, so talking about the the sort of writing process, this it's funny. I'm a bass player almost exclusively a bass player. I mean, I can play the ukulele. I can play the drums. I'm a terrible guitar player. I actually demoed all of these songs on guitar because I figured that I was by myself. I have two, I had two young kids at the time, actually September of, uh, oh, sorry, November of 2016, my second kid was born. And so like, I got a very pregnant wife and young kids sleeping in my very small apartment. And I am in, the room at night when they're all sleeping trying to like write these hard rocking songs on an unplugged electric bass and it's like the least rocking thing ever so i was like fuck it i have to just bust out the guitar i had like a little clip-on amp for the guitar and i was able to demo some of the songs in guitar and you can kind of tell that the guitar for john arby was written by a person who's not a very good guitar player that because it's not very complicated but I feel like that's also sort of the secret sauce to riff rock is that you don't want it to be crazy complicated. You kind of just want like a dan and like it's got to be plotting and forceful. Yeah. Well, don't don't sell yourself short. I think it's a great riff. I think what it, you're saying is that it's rhythmically complex versus tonally complex. And I do think that's the key to a lot of this type of music, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I think a lot of this that we pulled from foundationally is and, and you know talking circling back to the influences thing it's about um basics and having strong fundamentals and that's what pushes this mu music forward it's driving it's very rhythmically 
percussive and syncopated. And that's what makes, you know, headbanging a thing. Right. And, and yeah. it has for yeah. years. Yeah. Like you don't want to, you don't headbang to shredders. You headbang to like. Right. Nobody's headbanging to Dragon Force. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. you turn on old <laughs> Sabbath and you headbang to that because, Tom, to your point, it's the riffs are not crazy complicated, but they just grab you and they hold you. And yeah, the 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 riff on this uh, John Arby song is badass. Well, thank you, thank you, much appreciated. You know, we got into the subject matter of, you know, what are we gonna, how are we gonna tie all this together? We were trying to construct this world, and clearly the story of John Arby has to be told. So that was the archetypal villain. I was like, we got to tell the story of John Arby. And how he's sort of a despot, and we want to tell the beginning of the story from the standpoint of the cows that he's kind of coming in and enslaving. That at first it seems great because, like, hey, we got food, we got shelter, this is awesome. And then it's like, wait a second, we're being processed. You know, we have to bow down before his throne and give up our children and our our lives to him. What well, well, it was a a concept that I feel like we're gonna, you know, to to move us along to the next song here. I feel like it was a concept that Rob actually followed through with very well in the only song from the standpoint of John Arby on the album, which is the Lord of the Beef Lands. I, I, I want to get there for in a minute, but I want us to, let's just talk about literally how we created Legend of John Arby, because this is the kind of stuff I would be interested in if I was listening to another, forgive me listeners, but if I was listening to a band talk about this, I'd want to know some of these answers, right? So I remember that being the first song that we worked on as a band. We got together I think shortly before the pandemic as a trio and we started out just just jamming and playing some different stuff and we might have even kicked around this song right away before we really committed to the project so you know we got we got pretty good with this then the pandemic happened but then eventually this became a kind of an internal to the pandemic project where this was our only social outlet we were meeting up at the rehearsal space as a trio working through some of these tunes oh, playing in masks oh god that's playing yeah, in masks. We were wearing masks yeah, exactly. in the rehearsal yeah. space <laughs> yeah I mean, but th- really, there's nothing more metal than wearing a mask. So. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on the mask, never mind. But I-, I wanted to say, too, just writing writing style. I mean, Tom can elaborate on this, but and this this is the standard, but we, we did try some different things in terms of writing approach for this album. This one, as I recall, though, came together like Tom mentioned. He did a demo with the main riffs, and then separately, we probably worked on that first, and then separately was writing the lyrics and the melody to go against them. Then we took it into the room, meaning the rehearsal room with the trio, to kind of fill out parts where everyone's working on a couple things, right? You're working to, we call this arrangement. You're working to create a format that works, which is to say riff, verse, chorus, riff, etc., solo. And what you're doing and what we did, I recall, consistently was try f- different formats, write stuff on the whiteboard. You know, we'd be trying d- different variations. Everyone's kind of trying to lock in their specific part that makes sense so that the parts interlock correctly. And then we're recording these practices typically with just your iPhone sitting on a chair in the middle of the room, but then listening to them after the fact so that we can retain either little fun things we did or a format that we particularly liked, or just to evaluate a format. Because what I find is that you might conceptualize how a format should go, A, B, A, B, C, whatever. But then I find that it's really helpful to actually just listen to that and see how the song actually unfolds in your ear and then make adjustments from there. Yeah, did did you hear things in those recordings that you didn't hear live? 
that maybe just skipped by or you were too focused on nailing the part that you were on, you know, and then you went back to the recording and said, oh, I didn't realize we did that cool thing. Hey, listen to this. Part of the benefit of being a trio is there was a little less of that probably, but I will say that one thing we did go in, Tom mentioned us wanting very consciously to stay within genre bounds, which if you listen to the first Chop record, if you listen to the Beverly Crushers record, even if you listen to Alan and Phil's mega record, you're going to notice a fair amount of genre hopping within those bands. This one is probably the most consistent thing we've done. And when we were in the sort of early planning stages of that, we were thinking from a writing perspective, but also from a producing perspective. So I remember having these early conversations about saying, hey, how can we make this what are some other production elements that would make this more consistent? So one element was that on all the vocals, pretty consistently, I can think of one exception where it varies a little bit, we have, for instance, on this song, we have Tom doubling himself and then creating another vocal that's a one-fourth interval below. And I remember Tom and I went back and forth, tried to figure out what the most metal interval was that... <laughs> It's totally. It's the it's the interval we've mentioned that Allison Chains uses, but they kind of mix it differently than what we're doing and, and create. It depends on which melody you're thinking of as the main melody, I guess, in your head, and and that would affect how you mix it. But anyway, that vocal treatment in general was done across the board with a single singer doubling themselves, meaning singing the same thing thing twice, with only the subtle variations of a human performance, and then going one fourth below. And doubling that too. So in all the songs where there were notes that were hard to hit, you had to do it four times, which is all <laughs> super fun in the studio. Super right. duper fun. My favorite part of it. Um, <laughs> another funny anecdote about this recording process is that I could not sing and play this at the same time in the room. And so we would play this with no vocals at all in the room. And we just had to sort of know where the beats in the song were. There was no vocal prompts to it. So the first time, I remember coming out of the vocal booth in the recording studio and you guys being like, oh, yeah, those are are pretty good lyrics. All right. I've never heard them before. So like, (laughs) surprise, surprise. It's like, I I had them. They were there. Just, you know. We're trusting you that this doesn't suck. (laughs) Yeah. Another thing I'll mention. So we were originally scheduled. So this... We got waylaid on this album a couple times, unfortunately. There was some... This was cursed. This was the curse of John Arby. This yeah, is the, the curse, curse of John, John Arby. Arby is, you know. Yeah, I think we were ready originally to go up to the studio in May 2021 with with five of the tune, five of the seven tunes, and that got canceled at the last second, unfortunately. Well, even take a step back to the first time that we started playing was right before the pandemic hit, yeah. and then we got waylaid. We didn't play again for like a year after that. It's true. That's true. Then we had the recording date set. Very start of COVID hiatus where it was like no seeing anybody. Yep. 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 And then, and then, so we ended up rebooking for, I think October of that year, we went up to this place, Louder Studios. I think we've mentioned it a couple times in the podcast. It's run by a guy called Tim Green. He's a, he's a friend at this point. He's a great guy. And this is really his wheelhouse of music. So we knew we'd be in good hands going up there, but it's a situation kind of up in the foothills of the Sierras in Northern California, a couple hours from San Francisco, where you go and you stay on the property. You know, he lives there with his wife, you know, on the top floor of a house, and then the band stays on the bottom floor of a house. So it's like a 70s kind of crash pad situation. There's a couple acres of land, and then he 
there was an RV garage that he converted into a large studio also on the property. So you literally just get up and walk to the studio in the morning. So it's a cool experience in that sense. Can I talk about the curse again? Really oh, yeah, quick? let's talk about the curse. Talk there was the curse, a historic yeah. rain the three nights we were there. And on the third day, the power went out before we could even start like tuning. Um, so we lost, yep. you know, approximately 30% of the time that we were going to oh, have to record. Good Lord. Yeah. Well, and, and we didn't even mention that that was, we had to reschedule. We were supposed to be there. And then Scott had a family emergency and we had to cancel last minute and reschedule for several months in the future. Yeah. And then when we finally get there several months in the future, we only get two out of the three days because it's like flooded. And it took Rob and I like four and a half hours to drive home when it should have taken us like two. It was ridiculous. Yeah, it's kind of out there in the country. Did you guys have to continually relearn and repractice? Like how how tight were these tunes when you guys were going in? Because it sounded like you had a bunch of false starts. I mean, if you give me a song and I wait six months before I play it again with a band, I'm going to need a couple run through it. So how, how, did, how did you guys work through that? Well, one of the nice things was that, yeah, we did have to kind of relearn the songs that second time. We were originally scheduled to go in. So the way, the way that we tracked this was in phases. And the first phase is to get the trio of us, guitar, bass, and drums, all those takes, that, that live in the room, put to tape. And call that the bass tracking, B-A-S-E. And then we can add on top of it. So luckily, so you're right, the first time when the recording session was canceled, we were all practiced up and you try to, sort of like an Olympic event, you try to sprint up and and be just at the right moment, right, for the recording session and you, you attempt to do that. So after that got canceled, we took a little break from playing, I remember, and then sprinted up again, whatever it was, six months later. That worked out okay. When, the, when we got rained out that day, luckily we had gotten all five bass tracks done and we were already into overdubs so we kind of missed a day of overdubs and it just delayed the production of the album a little further and all of this did did the was was he the recording engineer or was he the producer or how would you guys define what uh the, the guy who helped you out did, did he provide any insight any any uh recommendations any suggestions on structure style any of that or was it he was just setting up mics and you guys ran with it i would say he didn't he wasn't like, hey, I think you should make this course longer. I think you should do this. But when Rob said, I want to double track guitars, he was like, I know exactly what we need to do. He's like a sound engineer wizard. He was just like, we do this scoop on this guitar amp with this guitar. We do this yeah. scoop on this guitar amp with this guitar. Play them together. It'll sound like gold. And he was right. It sounded like gold when he started playing those two together. So, well, so that's another production. I agree with that assessment. And that's another thing we did consistently on all the tracks, which is... And I, I cribbed this directly from the ZZ Top Trace Ombres record, and we talked about it on this podcast, Adam, was that rhythm, that kind of rhythm guitar, the whatever the, yeah, what you would call the rhythm guitar part is tracked left and right, and you have these very subtle variations. So kind of similar to how we did the lead vocal, which is to say you attempt to play the exact same thing twice, but because you're a human being and there are subtle variations, you get a little interesting, and then you can kind of pan mm -hmm. them left and right. But yeah, Tim immediately, first of all, he's a huge ZZ Top fan. I think Led Zeppelin also did this and other bands, I'm sure, as well. But yeah, Tim was immediately like, here's exactly how to EQ those two guitars to make that effect kind of what you want it to be, to Tom's point. Can I geek out on gear for a second? Sure. 
what what was the guitar setup what was the rig what was the pedals what were the drums you know like uh what was tom what was your bass rig like i, I want to know because it sounds friggin' awesome i can talk about the bass i have that specter that i've had for the longest time the specter with a the 20 year old specter yeah. yeah i bought it in 1999 things badass it's still the nicest bass that i have ever owned and probably will ever own <laughs> I had that bad boy running through um, the amp that Tim had at his place, I believe, was an old solid state PV head running through this like sun cabinet in the other rooms. Got a bunch of dirt on it. So you get a little DI going in. So you get a DI signal going in and a recorded off of the off of an amp signal. Um, so you get like a little bit of a dirt mix in there too. There's a little grit on a couple of these tunes yeah. on the bass lines. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure I can't remember what the second guitar stack was, but I was playing through an Epiphone SG that I bought for the project. And plugged into i think it was an old sun amp as well i think tim favors sun like real beat up looking head i can't i it might have been a marshall stack i can't quite remember the stack of speakers but it was a big setup what you called previously adam the brown sound you know you, you feel like a real <laughs> badass <laughs> brown yeah. hitting the chord on that thing and then on the and speaking of this song particularly and i'm particularly happy with how the guitar solo turned out this is our old friend the rat proco Oh, that is great. Scott, what did your setup look like? Yeah, for the drums, I used my own kit, which, like I mentioned earlier, was covered in dust, and I had to clean up a lot before uh, <laughs> bringing it to the studio. And it's uh, it's a Yamaha Stage Custom. It's an older model, Birch uh, shells. And then I actually, for both of the recording sessions, I used um, like loner snares for the studio. Um, I have, uh, as Tom mentioned, when I was younger and a little bit more practiced, I mostly played like jazz and funk. And so I have like an all maple snare with like maple hoops on it. So I used, I, I believe at louder, I used a like anniversary Gretsch steel over brass snare or something like that. That's, you know, this big okay. beefy, like seven or eight inches. Um, and then with Phil, he had, who is actually a drummer, which is great. He had a load of gear and I used this, uh, bell brass snare. I don't remember what brand it was, but it also had like a great ring to it. Nice depth, like real fat. Um, and then a mix, mostly bright cymbals though. So that's those like, you know, just those washy crashes that you hear like on this mm -hmm. song in the chorus and just getting it so that it's, you know, all kind of writing throughout. Scott mentioned Phil. It's a name that we haven't brought up before in this context. He's not talking about the Phil that we're friends with that is a friend of the podcast. He's talking about the Phil that was at the other recording studio that we had to go to because, what, five days before we were going to go to Louder, there was an emergency and Louder had to cancel on us and we had to find another studio space in the city last minute. And yeah. Rob was going to be oh, out of town, like out of the country. Yeah, we like had a two very... Two days after we were supposed to go, so yeah. Tight timeline to turn that around. 
Yeah, we had a tight window. So what happened was, right, we tracked those initial five and we made some progress producing them, but we realized, one, it went well enough. We liked even just listening to it without vocals and non-mixed. We liked it enough to say we should finish this record, and but we need a little more material, right? That was one piece. And, you know, we needed to go and, and produce that. And sometimes it's just much easier to go into a studio and do those vocals and do some of those guitar overdubs. So, yeah, like... Like the guys said, the gig got, you know, the studio dates got canceled at the last possible second. We were scrambling around. I called probably 10 studios in the Bay Area, and we landed at a place called L Studio with an engineer called Phil Becker. That's who Scott was talking about. He's a drummer by trade. It was a great studio. We tracked two more songs there, including Lord of the Beeflands. That's a great transition. Why don't we drop in a little clip here of Lord of the Beeflands? This tune rocks as well, man. This is this is just amazing. I love the guitar work, the acoustic intro there. That is fantastic. I have all kinds of questions about how that was recorded as well. But Lord of the Beeflands, what is the uh, what is the impetus of this song? Where, where did this one come out of? Was this one that you wrote because you, you know, Rob, you just mentioned you said we needed a little more material? Yeah, we got to that point. We had had a little break from each other, and we realized we need a little more material. We need to write a little more material, and so. Tom and I both went out and wrote one more song, basically, and this was the song I wrote. It, I, in my mind, it was attempting to be a, the single or a single for the song. We always joke about how all these all these albums. Apparently, they get all the way to the end, and then the engineer goes, "We don't have a single yet." And then Bruce Springsteen just turns out dancing in the dark like overnight. Like, oh, why didn't you do that earlier? I'm not suggesting this song is like that, but. No, yeah. I, so I'll say this one came together. Maybe it's obvious from listening to it, but it came together slowly. I think I started out with just the the verse riff, which is very Sabbathy, and I wanted to say I definitely learned from Black Sabbath to use every part of the minor pentatonic buffalo. 
But uh, but then, you know, and then so I kind of had that and I had the chorus, but it was only like a, a minute and a half long or something like that. So I, even though I had passed it on to Tom, he was like, yeah, you just need to write more. And I, and I wanted to mention, too, because this is something we've we've hit on in previous podcasts, is that the part that's in three, the kind of really heavy part when it kicks in and then it comes back for the outro that's in three, four, was something, I think a lot of players probably do this these days, but I periodically record little riffs if I'm just playing around on guitar um, in front of the TV or something like that, and I happen upon something I like, I'll just hit record on my voice memos, and they're not super well organized, let's be honest. So it's a little bit of a mess when you go back in there. But the guitar riff one through 55. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> was it? that's if I labeled it as a guitar riff, but you, right. you get the point, right? I'm always recording yeah. little things. I'm sure a lot of people do that. And so whenever I'm searching for an idea, Sometimes I will go back through. I think this was something that maybe I just played around with earlier when I was just trying to write more heavy riffs, possibly as part of the creation process for Smoke Mountain, which I know we're going to talk about. But anyway, I found it and I kind of attached it and I was happy with it. And then the last piece that came together was that acoustic intro where we're not above joking. One of the things I don't like about heavy metal or hard rock is how self-serious it can sometimes come off. I think the reality is all these most of these guys are, are goofy bastards. I think Ozzy and Black Sabbath are, are goofy guys, ultimately, and I think that reflects sometimes in the lyrics they actually put out there. But anyway, but I kind of specifically was like, oh, this is a trope that I think is funny to do, which is where a song starts acoustic and then just comes in super heavy. <laughs> so I very and then, it works. Yes, it's a trope because it works. It's a trope because it works. But I. But what's funny to me about this song too is that it has like two full minutes of intro before you get to anything well, approaching <laughs> words or a verse. I said that this was like an RB sandwich. Like you got like the good stuff in the middle, right? The front half is like a little something, and then it's basically sandwiched between some awesomeness. So yeah, you got your buns and three, and then all your meat and sauce and cheese. Right. That's you know. I had a bunch of notes on this song. Uh, Tom, at the 30-second mark, I think you do a chord yeah, on yeah. the bass over stops. top. Yeah. Super, super tasty. You had to mix that down because I didn't I – didn't, um, it's one of those things where if you heard the unmixed version of it, like it's, it's like quiet bass, quiet bass, quiet bass, <laughs> chord. <laughs> it's like, whoa, let's just let's pull that let's one down. Turn that down there. a bit. I was like, I know it fits in there. It just I happen to have fret it like very aggressively, and it's set way too high up there. But studio magic makes it fit. There you go. There's a super tasty. I, I don't know what the chord pattern is, Rob, but around the the same time that that Tom does the uh, the double stop there, it's this like super minor. It's like super evil, super minor thing that that you're not quite expecting that took me by surprise that I totally latched on to. Oh yeah. I put there's an augmented chord at the end of that little progression. I think that and I, I land on the the sharp five. Yeah. You want to build the tension into that hit, you know? Carry the tension through the next part. And Scott, you somehow managed to do that thing Tom mentioned earlier, which is like hard rock funk in here yeah that groove in the middle of the tune is really cool it's a tricky one because it's a it's a lot of uh drums just carrying the track right it's like there's multiple verses where you just have drums and vocals and i think this is one something rob i know you say a lot is you're big on building tension and, and so much music is about that give and take and i think this song just starts so you know it starts with building 
and then it's loud and then it comes back down and then it goes back out and it goes through these, these cycles. So I think having something that's, that's really rhythmically driving a little funky that you can still, you're not head banging, but you're grooving. And then that brings you to the like lot heavier once everything drops in. And I like the dichotomy too of it's kind of funky, but the hits are super straight. Like they are right on the money while the drums are a little in the pocket, which is a very cool, uh, very cool effect there. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of cool effects, one of the things I do want to touch on, I want to throw a little bit of uh, credit to engineer Phil here is that those backup vocals that we have where we're singing the Lord of the Beef Lands, he had created this microphone where it's like a mannequin head and the the microphones are sit in where the ears are on either side of the mannequin head. And so you sing at the mannequin head. And I've never experienced a better stereo imaging of a sound than I have with that microphone. It sounded crazy. Like you could tell where people were standing in the room when we did like the first track of just the three of us because there's a bunch of tracks layered on top of it but if you were to isolate just one of those group vocal tracks and listen to it you can tell who was standing on the left who was standing on the right who was standing in front of it it was crazy it was really awesome Well, and even while we were standing there, he kept playing back little snippets of us talking like interstitially and it would like make you turn because it had this yeah. very real, it, was, it felt like real ears hearing someone talk. It was very disorienting. Yeah, it was, it's a really in- ingenious uh, creation because I remember him saying it's meant to mimic, you know, kind of where the sound would bounce off the walls and at you as if that input, right, those mics were a person. And those were their actual ears. And so that duplicates that human listening experience. And then Tom's talking about all those takes. We would run through one, listen to it back. And then the next one, we'd all take, you know, a step, you know, at an angle, like a foot and a half over. So it really gave it that choral, you know, loud surround experience. Dude, that's wild. This tune also has potentially my favorite lyric on the album, which is no flesh is ever dismissed. <laughs> I just think that's great. I want to get a tattoo of that. That's a reference to what Tom mentioned about the Arby's menu, just constantly yeah. thirsting for right. the next we'll take it. strange we'll item. Take it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good Lord. You know, like I said, John Arby, he just... <laughs> It'll come up later where he say he rapes the land with with his two hands. He just takes everything, just piles it all into the machine. It's like a big grinder. He's just shoving it, or a big slicer, I guess, more accurate. He's just shoving it all on the top, slicing off the meaty goodness. You know, despite the curse, before both visits to the studios, we did start with a nice family meal of Arby's. You'd have to. You'd absolutely yeah. have to, yeah. And I think that's worth mentioning on here. You can so kind of, if you get real close to the speaker, you can probably smell some of it coming through <laughs> on, a, on the vocal, off the vocal track. You <laughs> need to disinfect all mo- vocal mics after the session. All right, gentlemen, you want to move on to, to Smoke Mountain here? I think we're going to, we're going to keep this it. thing rolling Let's here. All right. So we're going to drop in a little bit of the, 
the song that that kind of bookends this album here. This is Smoke Mountain. This song is the it's the culmination of the hero's journey. You know, we kind of tease it in the lyrics at the beginning of the album about how eventually somebody is going to come and destroy John Arby. They're going to find his hidden soul, his hidden smoke mountain. They're going to ring the bell, defeat the tyrant, free the free the cows. And this is the epic sort of conclusion of that. And so this was this actually represents the first time that Rob and I have written a song together and we've never done it. All the other ones I would say are like written by one person. This is something that Rob Scott and I kind of all contributed to writing it, which was a very different process. And I kind of loved it. And I really want to do it again in the future. Were you guys in the room? Were you firing off text messages? Like what, what is the, what, what does it physically look like? Well, let us tell you, Adam, please do. I've dubbed it. I've colloquially dubbed it the riff smash process. Which is, we knew we wanted an epic song. This song, for the listeners who haven't gone over to the Spotify link yet, is over 13 minutes long. In fact, I believe it clocks in at 13.13, which was sort of a happy accident. But we knew we wanted something long and epic to kind of end out the album. And so I think initially what we did was Tom and I just set about writing as many riffs or passages to the song that could be in there, just disconnected from each other doing those little voice memos or doing other kinds of demos on our laptops. And I think we gave ourselves a constrained amount of time. I don't know if it was one week or two weeks. And we sort of came back together, shared all of them in a Dropbox. Actually, I remember what we did. We shared all of them via email. And then I think we both agreed to go through everything that was there, because it was more than what ended up in the song. And for each of us to compile a very rough demo of what could be a format from that. Right. And so I think we both did that and, you know, and then we, we continued to refine it from there. 
but it, it you know from that point it went into the room and it became a real group process with Scott and figuring out a lot of times you're writing on the white you know we have a whiteboard at the rehearsal space where you're writing a b c this one went all the way out to g and there were <laughs> and there were also several yes. hash marks next to letters for variations like it was a long format G subsection four. Right, right. G prime and double prime. Yeah. (laughs) And I think also, like Rob was talking about earlier, there's this sort of segmentation that goes with it that's collaborative when it comes to song structure and then individual parts. And you're iterating on both of those simultaneously. So you plug in one part to a section. You say, oh, I don't know if it works there. Change the part. Maybe it's the section actually and the flow of the song and the kind of up and down of it and the dynamics of it. So it's kind of this plug and play process like Rob is talking about where you're developing the parts in concert with the rest of the song, but there is some kind of massaging that has to go with it as well. And bear in mind at this point in the writing process, we have no lyrics at all. No vocal melody. No. Oh, this nothing. is this We're is just, just the, the underlying. <laughs> trying to say like, okay, <laughs> does this give you a feeling of traveling? Does this give you a feeling of fighting? Does this give you a feeling of like resolution? <laughs> battle is one that we use. Yeah. 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 Oh, dude, yeah. that is great. Yeah. When it breaks into the kind of double time section, that riff in there, I could totally see being a Nintendo. That was uh, the mini boss battle. Was the like four? Yes. Of the it was, okay. Yeah. Very and then cool. at one point, Scott's just like, we have to have a part where there's just a bunch of people chanting, keepers of the beef, keepers of the beef. <laughs> like, well, of course. Of course we need that part, right? Like, Who did the lowest vocal on that, by the way? That was friend of the podcast, James. It, all right. I should have said it up front, but I thought that that may have been him. And I really <laughs> regret not saying it now because I could have. Anyway. You know what happened is that, yeah, Tom and I have learned this through through the years is that and I think we did get Scott on the tape but he's not really that used to being a singer it's not that it's a challenging part but we couldn't really hear him too much you can mostly hear Tom and myself and frankly mostly me because I am the loudest just by nature but what we realize is that when you want a gang vocal two does not make a gang you need a minimum <laughs> of three people and so that right. was that was actually one of the last probably maybe the final overdub we did this is after I've been here in Thailand. And we, we did a bunch of work, actually, after these studio sessions, we should say, just on our laptops, or at least a reasonable amount. Anyway, but we sent it to our friend James, who helped us out with that baritone. That's awesome. So the the what did mixing look like on this? Did you guys mix the the songs as they finished, or did you have them in you know a ninety percent state and then go through and mix everything at the end so you get consistency? How did that work? Yeah, good good question. So we we labored over our own demos. They were unmixed in the sense that they were not in any way EQ'd, balanced, or run through any particular sound plugins. Simply because I don't. We don't know how to do any of that on our own, or not very well anyway. You know, somewhat volume control. But really what that was about was that us making sure that we agreed on where parts came in and out. So I think we talked about this on a, even a very recent podcast, Adam, of you might play your guitar through an entire section, 
but then we only ended up leaving a little piece of it. And so we made a lot of those decisions by passing these demos back and forth to each other. And then we handed that to Tim Green to mix it. And he did, you know, we gave him some revisions, of course, but he did an excellent job right off the bat just because he knows what this music is intended to sound like. He did record a lot of it. And so I think at that point, it kind of gets almost to 90% right away. I will say there have been projects in the past that we've worked on where it sounds kind of wrong. Then you send it to mixing. You're like, oh, it's going to get fixed in the mix. And it doesn't. And then it comes back and you're like, it still sounds kind of wrong. But I guess that was just, it's just wrong. Um, This is one of the ones where I was like, "It, it sounds good, but it doesn't sound great. Like it sounds a little off. And then the mixing made everything sit so much better i was like oh it took a huge step forward just getting things to their appropriate levels because again you talk about there's minimum of four voices singing every lead vocal line like there's minimum of two guitars you got drum overdubs in there you have other guitar overdubs in there you got background vocals in there there's a lot of stuff that was fighting for real estate in your ear and tim did a great job of making all that sit very appropriately I wanted to mention, too, because you mentioned that when we were working out the arrangement for the song, and actually even after we recorded it, we didn't have any melodies or lyrics. That has a pro and a con to it. I think the only melody we had was that was my guitar melody at the very end, the kind of which is definitely inspired by Nintendo music. But other than that, no words and no lyrics and, in general, some missing parts that got added later. It was really cool to do that because we were playing through the sections by feel, meaning we didn't plan out for every section how many measures measures this should go on or when to change. So each take was kind of a little bit different and it was more of a feel and energy-based thing while we were recording it. The con to that approach, of course, is then we put ourselves in a box where we had to write lyrics and melodies that fit in those boxes to kind of move the song forward. For instance, in that four on the floor part you we've just referenced, it's uh, it sort of has a weird number of bars for a normal verse. We made it work, I think, but it has a weird number of bars where the verse melody kind of has to go A, A, B, just because of the number of bars that were sitting in that section when we, when we got to it. So it created some interesting challenges there. and But I, I think overall, I'm really happy with like how this process came together. I think I would probably add more melodies earlier in the process if I was doing it again. Mm. But I do, because I don't love being in that position of being boxed in. But all in all, I think it, I think it came out great. And I think it really moves. And I think you can feel the energy of the original take kind of what I was saying, because we were, we were guiding it by energy. Yeah. Well, and I think either way, Riff Smash is here to stay as a writing device. So, Heck yeah, yeah, it sounds there. like a lot of fun. Yeah. And the fact that Rob, you may still managed to come up with give us Lord our daily meat <laughs> as a line, <laughs> which well, is pretty, pretty and here's solid. Here's one of the other things, again, that, like, let's not gloss over the fact that for a good amount of the time that we're working on these songs, like, Rob is living in Asia, we're not 
like able to pop by and collaborate on this stuff. This is a lot of done over, you know, kind of spreadsheets and sharing and, you know, uh, Dropbox files. This song in particular, I did a lot of guitar recording sitting right here at the desk I'm sitting yeah. at now in Bangkok, Thailand. Oh, no way. On my okay. on my laptop using a using a rig. You know, we did the trio, of course, together, but after that, I think a lot of the guitar work I did the solo in the studio also. But after that, a lot of the little little extra parts, the little harmonies were all just done through a, an amp modeler on my laptop. All right. So so fittingly, as we're going to start rounding out this uh, th- this interview here, I got to know, is it a gong? Is it a bell? What is the last <laughs> the last sound on the last track here? I don't know. It, it sounds like a bell. Was there a bell it's in a the bell. studio? Was no, that organic? No. No, I had to find a church bell sound. I needed a big bell sound to <laughs> yes. get the, you know, because honestly, it's the weirdest damn thing. Why does Arby's ask you to ring a bell for good service when you leave? <laughs> I don't understand why that's like a thing <laughs> in so, so many Arby's. It's weird, but I was like, that's that's it. That's how you kill them. <laughs> I do remember when we stopped on our way up to Tim's to get Arby's and, uh, we had to eat it in the parking lot because they wouldn't let you dine in because this was still pretty serious COVID times. And there was just a plastic Arby's bag over the bell by the door. Yes. <laughs> you couldn't ring the bell. Could couldn't ring, ring the, the bell, bell and indicate you had great customer service. Because, and I just remember thinking, hasn't COVID taken enough? They had to come for this too. <laughs> Uh, I also yeah. love the idea that a plastic bag is going to stop the bell from functioning as well. <laughs> it was the most pathetic, like saddest thing I'd seen in a fast food restaurant. And I mean, yeah, in yeah. years. And then, yes, yeah, smash cut to us like eating forty dollars worth of roast beef off the trunk of a car in a parking lot yeah. outside of Sacramento, and I think you might have gotten a little bit sadder. <laughs> uh, uh. All right, Rob. What can people do to support loud local music like yourselves? Sure. Or I'll say international at this point, not even local. <laughs> right. Recorded on multiple continents, guys. Yeah, man. So, listen, first of all, thanks for even listening this far. The best thing you can do is listen to this record on streaming. It's on Spotify. It's everywhere as of October 24th. Or rock one of the playlists we have, which are linked in the notes to this episode. That'll really help us get the word out. Of course, pass it to a friend. Tell a friend. Tell them about the podcast, tell them about the record. All of it flows together in case you're not getting that picture. We are printing up a gold-colored vinyl, so and we have a, other cool T-shirts and merch if you want to check that stuff out. And be sure to follow us, follow the band and the podcast on Instagram. Follow us on Spotify. On the Instagram account, we're posting clips of the podcast every week, and we'll post more stuff from the studio and from our process here. So thank you. Cool. All right, Rob. So what is next for the Chop Unlimited, for the Chop Consortium, for this Chop uh, musical collective? Big plans. Big plans, Adam. Well, like I said, the main, the long, the long term plan is to get Adam, one Adam out of musical retirement to come back to the studio. Possibly. I might have to jump on this uh, riff <laughs> smashing or whatever you guys right. call it. <laughs> right. So maybe, maybe that'll happen in 2023. Maybe not. No, we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly what we're going to work on next. But suffice to say, we're dedicated to uh, we have a few pr- different projects on the fire one is a sequel to the beverly crushers album sick bay tom and i have already sketched or really written a lot of the songs from that and you might recognize a track from sick bay as our podcast opening music another one is a project that 
almost all of us from the podcast to work together, save Adam again, goal to get Adam out of musical retirement. But Tom's on this, Phil's on this, Alan's on this, and I'm on it. Tentatively called Stay Puffed, where the writing prompt was Ghostbusters Soul. We already did about five of those tunes, and I'd like to finish that album off. I think we have a good plan to get that done sometime relatively soon. So we'll see what comes next, or maybe some unnamed P-Funk polyrhythmic jam project with with the three of us on this call. Unclear. I'm coming back to the States. The sky's the limit. Basically, just stay tuned. Stay tuned to the CHOP channel if you want more weird stuff, more weird music more weird people talking about music it's all coming from there all right well listener thank you guys for hanging on thank you for the support gentlemen thank you for staying on the line all right that's going to do it for us folks for 1001 album complaints i'm adam i'm rob i'm tom and i'm scott boosh